I'm going to read two sections, really four verses total, four verses total, one from Acts chapter 7 and then a few verses from Exodus chapter 2 to get us going in the direction that we're headed considering the story of the people of God. So we've traveled a bit over the last number of months, and I'll give you a reminder of some of the stops we've been at. Remember that bus we were on? Remember this flight we took? So that we can all remember how it is that we're here. We've been studying the book of Romans. That was our first part of the journey. We got to the end of Romans chapter 10, and a curious thing happens. Paul is lamenting, and he is considering ethnic Israel. What does it mean that Israel is a people? Are they going to continue being a people? How is it that we're grafted in? What's their story? And at the end of chapter 10, he says there's this image of God. God has declared that he is forever patiently holding out, he's holding out his hands to Israel, but they've so often rejected him. So God is still holding out his hands. And then when we come back in August to consider Romans chapter 11, we're going to see that Paul says, well, then what next? What is going to remain of their story? How much of who we are as Gentiles are grafted into their story and what remains for Israel. How do we tell the story of the people of God? That's what Paul's going to be wondering as he begins the 11th chapter of Romans. And so that journey, as we've paused, has made us consider the story of the people of God. This is our story. Romans tells us that in the gospel, when we confess Jesus, that we're grafted in. I don't know how arboring works, but just imagine an existing tree, and then we're the life that gets, I don't know, Grafted, you know, grafted. I say that word and then I realize I have no idea how it works. But I can conceive of it that our life now is tied up together in the life of the people of God down through the ages. We are not brand new. That's what I'd want to say. We've not come from nowhere. We have a history. We're being grafted into a people that were existing. And so what we've wanted to do is consider that story. How did we get to where we are? What marks the people of God? What makes them distinct? How do we know we are them? Those are the kinds of things we've been asking. In order to get there, we took a cue from Stephen. Stephen, a spirit-filled, servant-hearted, bold, courageous man of the New Testament. And when given the chance to proclaim the story of the people of God, why he was committed to Jesus, facing death, he told the story of the Old Testament. And I've encouraged us to think of it as the foremost testament, the first testament, the foundational testament. He tells their story, and after getting through Abraham's story and up through Abraham's descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, we now come to Moses. So the question for the morning is, how do we get through the entirety of the story of Moses? Last week, more or less, we got all the way through Genesis And so now, in order to slow down the pace, we're just going to try to get through almost all of the story of Exodus. There's about 10 chapters less, so I think we can do it. We're going to try to tell the story of Moses, and in order to introduce it, I'm going to read one verse from Acts chapter 7, one statement from Stephen that summarizes his life, and then I'm going to read a few verses from Exodus chapter 2 to get us into the story. So Acts chapter 7, verse 25, this is what Stephen says concerning Moses. And if this doesn't explain the way that God's people interacted with this part of the story, I don't know what else would. Acts chapter 7, verse 25, he, meaning Moses, supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now, this is a beautiful statement for a million reasons, because, of course, the high priest and all the people are standing there with Moses, 
and or they're standing there with Stephen, and Stephen is, of course, trying to say to them, I would have supposed that you would have understood that God was giving salvation through Jesus, but you don't. But he says that through the voice and through the story of Moses instead. So this is going to be Moses' story. His destiny is both to be a, an instrument of the salvation of God and also to be consistently rejected and misunderstood. So that being said, let's read Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, and then I'll pray that we understand these words as we start to dive through. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 says, During those many days the king of Egypt died. Those many days, that includes 400 years. 400 years, a long time since Joseph came in as a favored ally of the king and his family coming in as a privileged and favor, favored people. So these many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He heard their cry, thus Moses. Let's take a moment and pray together. Well, God, we've gathered here, and we have your words in front of us. We have your spirit indwelling us. And with all that is going in our favor, you'd think that this would be an easy task. To focus on you and learn of you, to be transformed. But we are painfully aware, God, we know this morning the temptation to go through the motions. We've sung songs, and even this praying right now, and reading of Scripture. It is all a, a meaningless machine if you, Holy Spirit, do not grasp us. So I pray, Spirit of God, would you give us eyes to see and soften our hearts and help us to break through the cynicism that is so tempting to fall into. Spirit of God, break through our hurts, our distractions, the things that we are stressed by and thinking about. God, give us faith to see your hand working through Moses in the people of God and the way that that story goes all the way down here to us today. So please help. Spirit of God, move, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do I highlight the entirety of the life of Moses? How do we take one morning and say, well, this is what Moses means in the story of the people of God? I mean, that's a, that's a tall task. It's like saying, name your favorite donut, or just summarize quickly for me your favorite, I don't know, Marvel movie or something. Or tell me the best of the works of Shakespeare in five minutes. Or summarize the grandeur of the heavens, right, in, in one telescope image. Moses is a big story. I bet some of your favorite stories of all the Old Testament are bound up in Moses. And I want to tell you that I've done my best. This is a good faith effort to capture the life of Moses. And I think what I'm going to do is try to run on the themes of what Moses' life means and hit some of the highlights of how he worked to tell the story of the people of God. And other than 
nearly completely skimming over the basket and the water, and not totally telling all of the story of the plagues, and then not going point by point through crossing the Red Sea, and then not giving the actual verse-by-verse blow of the golden calf, I think I'm going to do pretty well. (laughs) Because other than those high points, we're going to try to tell the meaning of the story of the life of Moses. And I know that it's difficult because when you think of Moses, all of those points come forward and you think, well, that's the best part. But the question for the morning is not necessarily what are the best details of the life of Moses, but what does telling his story mean for the story of the people of God? And I believe that Moses, his story, and what he means to the people of God cannot be told without these concepts. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to jump from theme to theme to tell his life story. The first, you cannot talk about the story of Moses without mentioning redemption and rescue. It's why Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, Moses thought his brothers would understand God was giving them what? Giving them salvation. So the idea of salvation, redemption and rescue must be told and must be focused on if you're going to mention Moses. So we're going to look at the theme of redemption and rescue in the story of the people of God through the hand of Moses. Secondarily, and I believe this marks Moses more than perhaps any other figure of the Old Testament, you can't tell his story without talking about the presence of God, the fact that God is with him. You've heard phrases that God heard and he saw and he came down and God knew. These are phrases that are going to mark the people of God by the presence of God. And Moses, more than anybody else, knew that. That it wasn't enough just to be a nation state. It wasn't enough just to have a good organization. It wasn't enough just to be provided for. If they were going to be anything of significance, God's presence needed to be with them. So you can't tell the story of Moses without talking about God with them. So if I'm going to talk about Moses, I'm going to say, well, what do you, what do you like? What are you about? If someone asked you to tell your story, you'd say what you do for work maybe or the number of kids you have or where your ancestors came from. At least that's what my grandparents used to do. They would talk of no one until they knew what their ancestry was. Stop telling me about his basketball game or whatever. Is he a Swede? What is he? Pollock? What is he? They wanted to know where he was from. You might be telling people all those things and the point is this. We need to insist on Moses like my grandparents. Well, what marked him? Tell me about salvation and redemption and presence And then finally, and I think this is significant, this is how he's going to be used throughout the rest of the New Testament, or the rest of the Old Testament and the New, we cannot talk about Moses without talking about covenant with God by his law. So the rule of God by law, the righteousness of God given in covenant. So those three concepts, that's how I'm going to try to skim through or try to jump through the life of Moses, rescue, redemption, As a theme, presence of God, God with him. And then third and finally, we're going to talk about the idea of covenant or righteousness. That marks God's people. So, let's begin. Moses, his story is told because God heard the groanings of his people. 400 years, God's people went from being the second hand to the Pharaoh and privileged and provided for to being completely overlooked and overworked, and much maligned in the nation of Egypt. There were likely many prayers and many conversations about whether or not God had forgotten them. Perhaps these questions that they would have been asking generation after generation are much like the Apostle Paul. Has God abandoned us? Is there a plan for Egypt? Are we going to be forgotten? And it's those kind of prayers down through these generations of enslaved 
Israelites in Egypt that God hears. Their cry for rescue came to God, Exodus 2 told us, therefore Moses. And I'm going to, in narrative form, walk you along what happens next. The first clue that we know that there's going to be rescue involved with Moses is that Moses is himself rescued from the river, from a decree to kill the children of Israel. Then more than that, something changes in the heart of Moses, uniquely placed in a position of power. Something changes in him, and though he doesn't execute his instinct for rescue very well, something's burning within him. You see, he goes to visit the Hebrews who are his, his nation mates, his people, and he sees them being mistreated and he rages inside such that he tries to stop this mistreatment and ends up murdering an Egyptian. Then worse than that, he digs a hole and buries him in the sand and tries to cover it up. You see, the details are not great. Moses in his own power is not going to execute redemption very well, but he's got something burning inside of him. It says, I've got to rescue, I've got to relieve, I've got to pull them out of this mess. And so Moses needs to flee. He leaves Egypt altogether. He goes and lives for the wilderness, in the wilderness for a period of time, but God is not done with him. And when the time comes, God enacts his moment of rescue, his commitment to rescue by coming to Moses in a voice in the presence of a burning bush. Moses interacts with him, you know, the story of holiness and learning the name of God, I am, but it's the purpose that God has come to him that is significant. He tells him, I'm going to use you to go and speak rescue to my people. I'm going to tell the Pharaoh through you that you've got to let them go. Get out of here. You're going to be redeemed as God's people. And no matter what Moses does, he can't get out of it. It's like a kid trying to get out of chores. He's got every excuse. He says, I'm underqualified. I haven't finished grad school. Have you seen my grade in communication class? They won't listen to me. I'm a murderer. All these kind of things. God says, I don't care. You're going to go. And then in Exodus chapter 6, this is what he's told to say. In other words, what he thought that the people would have understood about his whole life and mission, being redemption and rescue. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, picks up the story. Exodus chapter 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Notice as we read this how many rescue-type phrases God is saying. It's what Moses' life is about. I will bring you out, he just said, from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So now in verse 9 of Exodus chapter 6, Moses speaks. He says, I'm here to save you. But it says this, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Moses speaks salvation, redemption, but they don't receive it. They don't understand. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but my guess is that there's a lot going on here in verse 9. They did not listen, and then for whatever reason, 
The text says, because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery, they were in a position where their mindset and their spirit set, if that's a thing, would not allow them to believe that God could accomplish redemption through Moses. In other words, the instinct of the people of God in this moment was, we can't be saved. Well, you know what comes next, right? I don't know which Disney movie you've watched or which version of Charleston Heston you've seen, but you know some of the story, and I'm just going to keep going through the narrative. So Moses goes back, and though the people rejected him, and though Pharaoh rejected him, God says, I want you to keep going, and I'm going to do miracles through you, at least miracles from our perspective, curses from Egypt's perspective, but we begin to have a series of plagues. There are locusts buzzing, and there are, there's water turning red to blood, and there are frogs hopping. There are bites and difficulties and darkness. And all the while, Pharaoh rejecting. All the while, salvation waiting. No redemption. Until finally, in a final act of God's declaration that he would save, he sends an angel of death. An angel of death that would claim the firstborn of all in the land. All in the land, that is, who have not sacrificed, who have not given over a perfect sacrificial lamb and covered their doorposts in the blood of this lamb. And a night of death visits Egypt. Cries can be heard the land over. And finally, as a result of this angel of death coming through the land and taking from all households and all places where the blood was not over the doorpost, Pharaoh relents and the people of God rejoice. They are going to be saved. So they plunder the people around them. They grab all their stuff, things that they couldn't have imagined having. They pack up and they get walking out. And they just have a parade and they walk out and they never hear from the Egyptians again and the sun sets and they sing Kumbaya by a campfire and live happily ever after. Wait, that's not what happens at all. It turns out that Pharaoh hardens his heart once again and before they're even out of the the reach of Egypt, he sends war chariots after them. He says, this rescue won't happen so easily. I'm going to bring them back. And then Moses again has to stand boldly and say, God, if you intend to rescue, you're going to have to do something here. And God answers by saying, yes, I do intend to rescue. So much so that I'm going to part the Red Sea and you'll walk across on dry land and you'll look back and watch your salvation happen with every wave. The chariots get washed away and it is there on the shore, on the opposite side of the Red Sea, rescue having been complete, that Moses does something that you might not know him for. He writes a song. You know that the Psalms aren't the only songbook of the Old Testament? There's little places everywhere where these little songs burst out, and Moses wants to mark the moment. Moses erupts in song. I don't know. I've heard from artists before that this is sometimes how songs happen. They just have to get something out, and so it goes. It comes, and then it's, it's marked. I've only ever written two songs in my whole life. One was a rewrite of a song called Hello, Mary Lou, Goodbye Heart. I rewrote for my fiancé on the day that we got engaged and sat her down and sang it in front of all of her family and friends. 
which was simultaneously, somehow this is possible, simultaneously, the absolute best decision and the absolute worst decision of my life. <laughs> I was to sing that song. Then around a year later, tried to write a, an original song. I did write an original song, and that ended my songwriting career. So I don't know exactly what it is that stirs people to songs. For me, it was I wanted to mark some moments, and I wanted to say a few things. And Moses at least has that moment here in Exodus chapter 15, standing on the other side of redemption, on the other side of salvation. He sings a song. This is just a few lines from his song. Exodus 15, starting in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Now, I, I do say if you ever want to write a song, involve the earth swallowing people, it'll get, I think it's, it's a good line. And then verse 13, note what he, his refrain. This is one of the refrains of his song. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. What Moses cries out and what he sings and what will ever, forever be the chorus of the people of God is that they have been redeemed. Which people did God leave with his steadfast love? Which people did God rescue? Well, Israel, and the thing that marked them from this point forward was the fact that they had been redeemed. He loves the people. He redeemed them because he loves them, and he loves them because he redeemed them. They could not tell their story without mentioning the salvation of God through the ministry of Moses. Now, two things happen to make sure this happens. Moses is a powerful song, and we're recording it and talking about it now. But that's only one of two things that made sure they would never forget. There's a second thing that makes sure that they could never tell their story without mentioning the salvation of God. And that is that there on the banks Following going through the Red Sea, God commands them to remember the Passover. He says to them, I, I want you to notice something here. One, you were in Egypt and you're there no longer. Two, you had to come through the waters of the Red Sea, and that's a big deal. But most of all, remember this. If it had not been for the sacrifice of an innocent lamb, if it had not been for the blood on your doorposts, death would have visited you that very night. And so God commands them. And through the instruction of Moses, he tells his people, here's the thing. When your kids ask you in the future, tell us where we came from or what happened. If somebody comes on a tourism visit to Israel and stops by at the info booth and wants to know the history, Moses says, don't you dare for the rest of time ever tell your story without remembering the Passover. And from this moment forward, the people of Israel have been careful to enact a week-long remembrance highlighted by a paramount feast where they retell the story and re-experience what it was like to be rescued by God. Here's the lesson I think that we're learning about the story of the people of God. There is no people of God without the rescue of God. No matter what else you're tempted to say about yourself, if you do not start with the idea, if, you are, if this is our story, we've been grafted in, if we don't start with the idea, well, let me tell you the only thing about me that's worth anything. I've been redeemed. You see, me without redemption is not very impressive. Me without rescue is slavery that I'm offering to other people. Me without the power of God to redeem is simply telling other people some tricks I found around the prison. If we have life, if we have freedom, 
It must be because God is a redeeming God. That's been the story of the people of God from day one. So the question becomes, are we like Israel in this way? Can we tell our story without talking of redemption? If we can, we've missed it. Because the story of Moses' life, standing on the banks, having just been redeemed, is to say, let's never forget. And this is the command of God. So I told you secondarily there was going to be a a presence of God concept that Moses, more than anyone else in the story of God's people, insists on the presence of God. You've heard things like this already. Notice what it mentioned, what it said in the things that we've already read. People prayed and God heard. God saw. So God visited. And he promises to people, I will be with you. And it's that withness of God that marks his people. It is the only thing of significance. The only thing that they personally or individually had to offer was their redemption. And the only thing collectively they have that sets them apart after having been redeemed is the presence of God. This is what he promised in Exodus chapter 3. He says to Moses when he calls him to go redeem, he said, I, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's a little bit of a spoiler. It's a foreshadowing. That's going to be point three. They're coming back to the mountain that he's called from. The very place that the, bur- the bush is burning is the place where they set up shop for a while and he receives the Ten Commandments. But note the way that starts. God does not promise Moses, I'm going to do miraculous, crazy things like a burning bush again for you. He doesn't say, let me tell you what's coming next. I'm going to, with my own finger of lightning, write out my laws on stone. Now, those things are cool. What he leads with is this, I will be with you. I will be with you. And then to remind God's people who kept forgetting or apparently were nervous and not sure if they were going to be provided for, God kept giving them symbols. So in that day, if you came across, across this odd bunch of a few million Israelites wandering in the desert, and you wondered what it was about them that was peculiar, well, you would have noted something like this, Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. It says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. His presence did not depart. It's amazing how patient God is with his people and gives them such obvious reminders. He's told Moses, and Moses told them that he'd be with them, but he knew that they'd forget. God's story of interacting with his people, he's like the most patient preschool teacher you could imagine. He's just very carefully, no, remember, to go outside, you've got to wear your shoes. Where are my shoes? Which foot do they go on? Okay, I'm going to help you. Let me make the loop again. I don't know what the things that people do, but around the corner and through the den or whatever it is, right? Let me do that again. And then you know what happens? They wake up the next day and the people, people of God are like, ah, we're alone. We're not provided for. And God has to say, okay, now remember, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're scared or you think you're tempted to go back to Egypt, you're not going to be provided for. Here's what you got to do. Open your tent and look to the left you'll see something that looks like a massive burning fire cloud. And that'll remind you. I mean, it's legitimately like tying your shoes. That'll remind you I'm with you. And if during the day 
You're so downtrodden and you're staring at your feet and you're exhausted and you think, I'm going to be lost. I don't know where to go. No one's guiding us. The GPS is broken. Just calm down and look up on ahead and there you'll see me in a massive cloud leading the way. You see, this was the thing that marked God's people. It was the presence of God. And it wasn't just God reminding, it was Moses consistently reminding, and if there's one lesson that Moses got, it was this, that if God's presence isn't with me, then I can't do it. He insisted on God's presence when he went to Pharaoh. He insisted on God's presence when he stopped and instituted the Passover. And then perhaps one of my favorite moments in Moses' life comes in Exodus chapter 33. And I know what you're thinking. Yes, it's amazing. He goes up on the mountain, he hides in the cleft of the thing, and he sees them the trailing edge of God's glory. Yes, that's amazing, but it's before that. Let me set the scene for you. In Exodus 33, God is, as patiently as you can be, like a wonderfully loving parent, sick of his children. Have you been there as a parent? You couldn't love your children more, and you know you love them because you're so sick of them. Or something like that. And in response to their groaning this time, this is what God has said to Moses in the beginning of Exodus 33. He says, fine, you'll have what you want. You want to leave here, you want to get to the land that's flowing with milk and honey, then just go. Go. You can have success. You can finish the journey. It's over. You'll have what you wanted. And in response to this, this is what Moses says in verse 15 of Exodus 33. And Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses says, isn't this the only thing we got going for us? Isn't this our favor, our good, our blessing that you're with us? And in the face of promised success, He could have completed the mission. He could have ended the groaning. He could have stopped all the complaints. God has said to them, fine, go on ahead. You see that land over there? That's what I promised. It's got milk and it's got flowing honey. And after all the time with the manna, nothing but water that flowed miraculously from rocks, the people would have loved that kind of stuff. It would have solved the problem of all the complaints. But Moses knows something. He says, no, 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 if we're not with God, if he's not with us, we're just people, we're not the people of God. And it makes all the difference. Moses would have been lauded as a ministry success. By the time they got to the edge of the land flowing with milk and honey, he would have been cast up on shoulders. Cheers of Moses, Moses, he's our man. If he can't provide for us the promised land, no one can, (laughs) right? You see why I don't write songs? (laughs) So the question remains, does this mark the people of God? Do we insist on his presence or are we satisfied with success? When offered comforts and everything that we think that we need, would we be satisfied? Or would we long for God's presence Him being with us. Imagine facing pressure faithfully for years and years. 
feeling the stress and the pressure cooker of complaints in your way. Why are you such a failure, Moses? I thought you were leading us somewhere, Moses. He's like, he's got to listen to his, his people. It's like listening to your lover talk about their ex. Boy, Moses, thanks for the manna again, but you know, let me tell you who was a great cook? That lady back in Egypt. And everything that he could have wanted in a worldly sense was there before him. God gave him sanction to do so. Go ahead and leave. You'll have it all. And Moses says, if you won't go with us, if you're not going with me, I'm not leaving. The question becomes, does this mark us? Are we satisfied with services and gatherings that can be explained entirely and completely in human circumstances? Would we rather fill seats? Would we rather find comfort? Would we rather be lauded by the world that looks on so that they stop complaining? Or will we not be satisfied until we wait on and experience and treasure and press deeper into the presence of God? That is the question for the people of God. It's tempting to be impatient. It's tempting to not let things get messy. It's tempting to just give an answer because it's easier, but Moses knows that God's people are nothing without him. And that is one of my favorite things that marks him as a man. It's one of the best lessons for the people of God. My wife has been faithful to pray many things over the years, but probably over the last decade, the thing that I've heard her say or pray most often a phrasing from Scripture that says that if the Lord does not build the house, its builders build in vain. And it's that lesson of the people of God, I think, that Moses is setting forward. He says, no, 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 we could build a society over there. We could build the railway. We could get the milk things going. The honey stuff would flow. We could put into production all the things. But if we build it and you're not there building it, it's in vain. That's a wonderful lesson, and I'm grateful for Moses' example and for the Word of God that teaches us. We don't have a lot of time. I haven't even gotten to the Ten Commandments yet. Either of them. <laughs> either, of the, either of the Ten Commandments. But I said that what's marked, and Moses is probably most known for, is that God re-covenants. He institutes His rule and His reign through His Word. The thing that marks the people of God is that they have the Word of God. They have the commands of God. They know how to walk because God has told them how to walk. And the thing that sets them apart is their righteousness. They're holy because they have the Holy Word of God. And as I say this, you might be getting suspicious. Because you think to yourself, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know how they handled this, and you would be right. Because Moses goes back to the side of the burning bush, and he goes up on the side of the hill, and he gets the... Ten Commandments. And all the meanwhile, the people get impatient. We're going to read in Acts chapter 7 here in a minute. They say, who knows what happened to Moses? They probably got eaten by a mountain goat or something. They're treacherous this time of year. They go to Aaron and they say, we can't wait for him. Give us another God. And Aaron has every excuse in the book. He mumbles through it later and he says, I don't know what happened. They gave me some gold and out came a calf. As though he didn't have to commission the artist to make it. 
as though there weren't many moments where they exchanged the Word of God and His commands and His righteousness for their own desires and own set of worship. Exodus chapter 19, God doubles down on the covenant though. Despite their disobedience, He gives them the commandments again. There's a moment right before when He says, go ahead and just get out of here. God is sort of sick of His people. He even tells Moses, I'm just going to wipe them out. I'm so mad about this worship thing, I'm just going to wipe them out. God legitimately says to Moses, hold me back. You know, like that guy who's like going to get in a fight, he's just like, hold me. Oh man, hold me back. I'm going to kill him. And Moses legitimately holds God back. And God says, you're right. I'm going to remember my covenant and double down. They need to keep my word and I'll be with them. It says in Exodus chapter 19 this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God covenants by His Word, again with these people, the thing that marks them is not only that they've been redeemed, not only that His presence is with them, but that they are bound by covenant to righteousness. God says, here's all you've got to do. Just follow these words, keep my covenant, and you're mine. And now we'll just go back to Acts chapter 7, and Stephen summarizes well what happens next. Verse 39 of Acts chapter 7. Here's a good summary of what happens over the next, oh, I don't know, thousand years. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, speaking of Moses. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. You see, they never got over, this is what Stephen's saying, they never got over the spirit of the golden calf. They had the command, the word of God, the righteousness of God laid before them, and they kept choosing their own way. They say, Acts 7, as for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. And that phrase, rejoicing in the works of their hands, describes the nation of Israel in so many ways, the people of God in so many ways. They're marked by the covenant of righteousness in God's word, but they rejoiced instead, rather in the word of God, in the works of their hands. So what do we make of a people of God who refused to believe that they could be redeemed and didn't understand that God was redeeming them. And what do we make of a people of God who many times would have been willing to leave the presence and the provision of God just to go back to slavery? And what do we make of a people of God who have the kingly rule of the Word of God, the directions of life, the laws set in front of them as a nation, but they rejoice instead of the works of their hands and reject this rule of law? Well, the thing that we make of them is that these things would have to be repeated and have to be upheld and God's steadfast hand would have to continue to carry them. You see, the thing that marks the people of God is not that they finally figured it out. It's not that, oh, they practiced long enough and then they, rede- they remembered redemption and they practiced long enough and they finally got God's presence. They practiced long enough and they finally got righteous enough to be marked as His people. Now, the reality is is that all this was pointing forward. And the principles of the people of God point forward to the person of the people of God. And ultimately, Hebrews 3 rejoices in the fact that Jesus is so much greater than Moses. 
eventually Jesus saves and redeems and rescues the people of God. And his entire life is set forward because God heard and God knew and God saw and eventually God sends. And the way that he accomplishes redemption, the only thing valuable about the people of God is that he must come. And so the Savior comes not just to rescue, but he comes as God with us, Emmanuel. And Jesus brings the very presence of God to dwell in our midst. And finally, despite our disobedience, our rejection of the word of God, the rejoicing in our own works, Jesus came to perfectly obey. He fulfills the law wonderfully. He keeps covenant so that all those who are found in him and all of those who are under his kingly rule can be covenanted as God's people as well. The lesson of Moses, the lesson of the people of God, the thing that Stephen is begging the high priest to see is that we would not repeat the mistakes, but we would see clearly in Jesus what God has been saying all along, that his people are marked by those who have been redeemed and those who have his presence and those who are under his kingly rule. So, the lesson for us and the application of the day is to not refuse and misunderstand, but to receive and to rejoice.